Welcome to The Follow-Up, a weekly podcast that goes in-depth into projects recently reviewed on Brand New, featuring conversations with the designers and sometimes their clients, uncovering the context, background, and design decisions behind the work. Hi, this is Brian Gomez-Palacio, and welcome to episode 46 of The Follow-Up. This week, we're following up on Chatham, a new yet very old brand of wool blankets produced by Alex Chatham, the great-great-grandson of Alexander Chatham, who founded Chatham Manufacturing Company in 1877. Located in Elkin, North Carolina, the wool mill produced high-quality blankets and remained in operation until the 1990s, when it was shut down. After a successful Kickstarter campaign by Alex, Chatham is back in business with the Blue Stripe Throw, based on the original Chatham blanket recreated using archival material. Working with a mill in Connecticut that has been operating since before the Civil War, the first new Chatham blankets came to market in December of 2021. The project, designed by Brooklyn, New York-based Order, was posted on Brand New on February 1st, 2022. You can pull it up in your browser at bit.ly slash bnpodcast046. That is bit.ly slash bnpodcast046, all in lowercase. This week, we're joined by Jesse Reed, partner at Order, Emily Clavey, designer at Order, and Alex Chatham, owner of Chatham. In this conversation, we learn about how closely the design remained tied to the archival material, but also how important it was not to let it be a simple reproduction. We hear from Emily and Jesse about the many considerate steps they took to build a full alphabet, with punctuation to spare from only a few existing characters, and how they breathed new life into graphic gems from the archives that were implemented with a remarkable amount of restraint, given how nice they turned out. From Alex, we hear what every designer wants to hear, which is a client trusting their designer, but also pushing back when things didn't feel right, as was the case with the original primary blue color presented that didn't make the cut. And after hearing them all discuss that, it's clear the project was all the better from that decision. Now, let's listen in as Armin follows up with Jesse, Emily, and Alex. Hello, everyone. Today, we're getting ourselves knee-deep in the worlds of slab, serif, typography, and wool. Two things that are awesome on their own, but even more awesome when put together, as is the case in the new combined world of Chatham. Emily, Jesse, Alex, welcome to the follow-up. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey. If you could let us know who's who with your name and title, just so that our listeners can recognize the voices. I'm Jesse Reed, one of the partners at Order on the design side of this project. I'm Emily. I'm a designer at Order. I'm Alex Chatham, the owner of Chatham Manufacturing. Perfect. Alex, we're going to start with you. Between the case study that Order put together and the Kickstarter campaign that you launched, which has a great video in it, there's plenty of historical information and a great origin story about what Chatham Manufacturing Company was and what it did, so I don't want to spend too much time on its history. Instead, I would like to focus on its revival, 
So as a two-part question, when did you first become interested in the idea of bringing Chad and Blankets back to life? And what were you doing professionally before that? I was and still am an industrial designer. That's my main career track, consumer product design. I'd been working at Peloton. When I started this project, I was kind of working freelance. I've had a lot of design consulting experience doing all kinds of products from cars to bags, shoes, phones, household goods, furniture. And I would say that I really got serious about this project about six years ago. Obviously, I had always kind of known about my family's history and the company, but always as a back of the mind thing that, you know, was kind of gone and buried in the past. And somehow I got interested in just kind of reading more about the history of it. And then I was struck with the idea of somehow bringing a product back. And as an industrial designer, I do a lot of work with factories, designing things that get made. So I kind of went through the research of figuring out whether or not it would actually be possible to bring this back. Who would I have to work with? figuring out things like pricing and product would work, and then really learning as much as I could about the wool industry and talking to as many people as I could. In that initial research, was there a moment where you went, oh, I can do this. This little key to the whole operation is what will allow it to happen. Or was it just a combination of everything that, oh yeah, it can be done with the right things in place? It's been very hard to find someone that I could work with to actually make this happen. And I feel like the longer I spent trying to find someone that could do this, almost the more I was dug in. So rather than a moment that was like, okay, yes, this is going to work. There were lots of little moments that were like, okay, I've invested so much into doing the research and having the conversations. For example, when I started this, I was talking with Woolrich, who is a historical wool manufacturer in Pennsylvania. And while I was talking to them, their entire mill shut down and the company got bought by like a European investment group. And then it was, okay, well, we can't work with them. Who else is out there? And then more research, more emails and more conversations. It's a little bit of a malady that happens to designers that we become stubborn and obsessed with making something happen, <laughs> even when everything points to like, no, you should stop now before it's too, right. too late. <laughs> In regards to your childhood, were the blankets a part of it? Like you obviously shared the last name with your great-great-grandfather who was the founder, but more directly with your parents, was it a thing in your household? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, my parents still have dozens of old wool Chatham blankets just kind of lying around the house. Half of them are moth-eaten, and I'm sure each one has a lot of stories they were always there. Plus, there were always little like knickknacks, like model trucks with Chatham written on the side and stuff like that. Postcards of the mill. Yeah, that's wonderful. We never saw those model trucks, by the way. Oh, really? This is new information to me. I gonna say. I gotta show you them. We need to make we them. We could have made those. Yeah. yeah. Could have probably changed the trajectory of the design completely and you had no idea. It was a gold mine of little trains, little toy trains there. Yeah. You launched the Kickstarter campaign in 2021? I believe it was 2020. Okay. The end of 2020. And how long did that run for? The Kickstarter itself was only a month, and I kind of promised everyone that they would be done within a couple months after that. And then it actually ended up taking about a year from the end of the campaign to when I had product in hand. 
Yeah, which seems to be semi-normal for Kickstarter. Everybody has great ambitions of delivering two weeks after it's been funded, but that rarely happens in real life. Now, Jesse, when did Order become involved in the project? So I had to look this up because my memory was getting foggy. It was almost a year ago to the date. It was in January of 2021. Yeah, I looked up the email and it's quite an entertaining email the way that Alex phrased it. And basically, he might not like this, but I'm going to quote him saying that he needs to juice up the identity. (laughs) Order was tasked with juicing up the identity. And Alex and I know each other from college. So we went to the University of Cincinnati together. He was studying industrial design. I was in the graphic program. And that school is great because all of those disciplines mingle and interact with each other and everyone's like roommates with one another. So still to this day, I'm friends with the fashion design friends and students that say it's fashion or industrial or architecture. And then, yeah, eventually everyone goes off and most people start a company or do something. And then they just call up the person that they knew from school in the other discipline. I do the same thing. I call up all my industrial design friends to help us render products for our identity jobs. Alex got in touch. We had kept in touch over the years. And I was a backer of the Kickstarter campaign. And he just wanted to, I think, take the brand a little bit more seriously and had the vision to not have it only be one blanket, but actually produce a line of products um, in the future. Um, I think him and I had casually talked about what we do and sort of concept of, of an identity system, not just the logo. And in always the back of my mind, I saw the potential that he was sort of sitting on. Yeah, it started about a year ago. And Alex, did you have other designers you approached or did you just know Jesse and that was your first and only stop? I actually had worked with another designer earlier on in the project, but it was very limited work. We didn't produce that much together and I knew that I wanted something bigger than what he had given me or was probably capable of doing on his own. And I knew like in the back of my mind that I'd wanted to work with Jesse this whole time. And did you... Good answer. Yeah, that that is a great answer for extending the bond that unites you. I don't mean this in like, were you not aware of how identity works, but do you have a sense of how an identity could help your brand? Or once you got talking to Jesse, did the ambition of the project grow based on your initial conversations with him? I think I've always had a sense of how important it would be and what a complete system would be like, but I just knew that that's a relatively big project. And just in the sort of order of prioritizing what you want to get done when you start, one of those things that you feel like, okay, you need this, like you want to set your company up kind of on the right footing from the beginning, but it's a big project to pull the trigger on right away. So I was kind of mixed between those two things when we started or when we were talking about it. Yeah, you know, to make money, you got to spend money in a way. And it's always hard to (laughs) make the decision on identity. Now, Jesse and Emily, what was the initial brief or direction you got from Alex other than juicing things up? Which is, I think that should be the brief we should all gauge. Like, yes, I'll juice it up. I can do that. No problem. But beyond that, what were some of the initial directions that you received for tackling this project? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was rather straightforward in the sense of, well, what it wasn't was Alex coming to us saying, I want a custom typeface for our identity. And that's what we need. 
it was strictly around building out the identity and like primarily focusing on the website. I think that was a key deliverable that needed to exist beyond the Kickstarter because, you know, the Kickstarter happened, it was over, it's still visible, but there needed to be a place to purchase the same blanket in the future and then other products. I would say those were the deliverables. It was the identity, a website. But I mean, unless I'm forgetting anything for either Alex or Emily to correct me, there wasn't something so specific that Alex was looking for in terms of design direction. I think it was us actually knowing that a lot of the archival material existed because it was displayed on the Kickstarter page. Secretly, I could see very clearly where this could go. In the back of my mind, I was always, oof, we could just do so much typographic goodness somewhere in there. I didn't know like which specimen we would choose from, but there was just so much rich material to pull from that I just wanted to convince Alex to let us do the project and then we'll figure it out and present something afterwards. Identity, website, and then the rest sort of just developed itself. From my perspective, I felt like there's a lot of archival material, but none of it is very cohesive. There are a lot of different eras with different typography. There was never a super cohesive period just in terms of like identity in the company's history. And even like within certain periods, they would use different kind of logos and fonts on different things. What I really wanted was for Jesse and Emily to look through things with their eyes and their taste and judgment, find what felt right and felt natural because I knew that it would all be authentic. Whatever they picked from all that material would be true to the heritage in some way, but just finding the thing that that is kind of authentic, but isn't too antiquated and just makes sense with modern leaning towards timeless sensibilities. And where did all the archival material come from? Honestly, a lot of it is stuff that I've purchased and collected from different people. There's some stuff that going through like drawers of my parents' stuff pulled from there. A lot of stuff that I bought on eBay. There's some things in libraries and museums. I met a few collectors that just had things. So a lot of different places. Now, Emily, out of all that stuff, was there something that stood out to you from the beginning? Yeah, I think from the very beginning, Alex's tendencies and inclination towards what he was leaning towards, we can see on the Kickstarter on the original Chatham label is that slab serif design from 1930s, 40s Chatham history. So we approached it with a very thorough timeline and audit that we had the framework for on the Kickstarter when we were first looking into it and then dig in even further and really look decade by decade. What are the trends? What's the language that's occurring in the typography and the photography? There were a few other key areas that we were drawn to and interested in that felt very significant for Chatham's memorable iconic representation. But that slab lettering was pretty unique to Chatham and very specific in its rendering. I think Alex was spot on in that. And that was what we were drawn to as well. And what we expanded on pretty early in the beginning, the first presentation, I would say. Speaking about the first presentation, it sounds like there was a clear inclination towards that slab. And I can see why. But did you explore other routes beyond that? Or was it just like a laser focus on that and just trying to make it work with just one design option to show Alex? The short answer is no. We presented one option. But one option in a very large way. Emily did this incredible, and like she does this every time, where she just totally unpacks the history of a company. I mean, this one was just sort of, again, rich with material to do that. 
gave a little Chatham history lesson in the very beginning of the presentation. And we always do this audit of a company, no matter what time period they've existed from. But this one was just telling the story, unpacking the material that we saw and that we had and categorizing each of those decades, seeing themes, and then ultimately coming to this very clear direction with one unifying voice, which revolved around this slab. So we did go all in on it. And as you can see in the case study, there are a lot of supporting actors and there's a lot of devices that are included. So it's not just the slab, but they're also like iconography and photography, product photography and other sort of like textural materials that were included. We rarely do that. We have done it before. Typically, you're presenting design directions and there's like three, the golden number, maybe there's five, very rarely two. But this one just felt like we could build the story and it just made so much sense where there was like, you know, no questions like left unanswered from what we found. We risked it and Alex was very forgiving or, I don't know, (laughs) allowing us to show him one option without giving multiple. Just to add on to that, That is all very true. And then the two other key moments in the history that we were first looking at in the exploration phase for the typeface was the original 1877 building signage, and then later kind of a Gotham-esque packaging lettering that was on one of the Chatham boxes from the 50s. We teased those out originally and looked at sketches and explorations for them, but ultimately those didn't have the same grab as the slab, like Jesse's saying. And if I remember correctly, that lettering on the mail was fairly similar to the Gage and Tolner design, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it had, I don't know if they're flourishes, yeah. but more Art Nouveau, just very organic forms. Emily tried a bunch of stuff that I think Alex didn't see fully, but at the same time, and not to sort of jump to this part of the identity, but those explorations still lived on when we did a whole series of different seas that were pulled from different decades of Chatham's history. So that work actually led itself to a place. It wasn't the primary voice, but those different letter forms and type references still made it through. Alex, what was your reaction to that first presentation? Jesse says that there were no questions left to be asked, but I'm sure you had questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what I rely on order for is their impeccable taste. And for me, if they say something is the right thing, I trust that. I would say the only part where we diverged was when we were picking a color for the brand. Yeah. And they'd initially picked a blue that was a beautiful blue, but I just thought that it didn't feel right. So then we did an exploration of just that. But for the typography itself, I felt like they know their stuff. And if they think this is it, then I think it's it. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about this blue versus green. How did that uh, evolve? Since it sounds like an interesting challenge. I could just quickly say, I mean, the blue was pulled from the blanket that Alex launched on Kickstarter. We were overly logical and we're like, well, we need a color. There's a color on that blanket. So why don't we just use that color and put it in the identity? Alex, maybe you could speak to this sort of what was wrong with the blue. I can't actually remember what wasn't feeling right about it that led us to a different place. I think it was two part. I think somehow I felt like the blue color didn't seem like timeless enough. I don't know how to say this. Like it seemed like a newer color somehow to me, like a color that wouldn't have existed 100 years ago. And somehow that part of it, it just didn't read as authentic to me. And then I don't know why, but in my mind, I think I just said that the colors were either a deep red or like deep green. And I think I was just stuck on that somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It was too RGB. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to say on Bluegate, it was definitely very digital. And I think Alex's reaction to the color was so spot on. And even though in the physical application of the blue on the original Kickstarter blanket, it feels very warm and inviting, but in the digital setting and translation, it didn't have that same tone. And so the green was a really good solve for that. There's a very different feeling that comes across from a blue on screen as opposed to a blue on what looks like a beautiful wool texture. I think it just humanizes it so much more that you just can't replicate that on screen. Let's talk a little bit more in detail about the wordmark and the ensuing typeface. Emily, how did it develop? Because the end result looks so simple, straightforward, which is the hardest thing to achieve for something to feel so that it just came out so effortlessly, but I'm sure that was not the case. So talk to us a little bit about going from initial sketch to the final design. I love that question. It's very spot on. The typeface and the wordmark were developed at the same time. So they were working in parallel with each other. That helped us in a lot of ways. And we had so much control of the letter forms, making sure the lockup was visually cohesive across the board. We just had complete control over, which was very exciting. And I think there were a lot of natural tendencies in the letter forms of the slab that we were pulling from the source material that resolved typically those areas in spacing with the letter combinations that would be trickier, like that A and that T, the the A's next to the H and the M. Like looking at the C, for example, all of the round forms and the letters and the typeface are traditionally more square. So we kind of have this perfect opportunity to line things up in just a more cohesive, balanced way. I think we were very lucky in that sense, but also that was a very strategic move in how we were thinking about those forms together. Yeah. And just in terms of extra geekery for our listeners, what software are you using to build a typeface? We used Glyphs. Okay. That might be controversial to some, but (laughs) it was the right move for us. Yeah, I think we're sort of past that controversy. It has become the de facto software. I, I still remember the days of Fontographer, but that is just dating myself too much. Now, Alex, how involved are you in the process of the typeface? Or are you just like, I trust you, just tell me what it's done, and when can I load it on my computer and start typing things with it? They showed me the work in progress, which, you know, it's enjoyable for me to see the process. I wouldn't say that I gave any input because I don't know enough about the nuances of typeface to be, like, critical. So when they were developing it, I was like, this is cool. I enjoy seeing this process, but I trust you with that. It's a little bit like finding the right person to operate the wool machine. It's not your area. You can appreciate how it's done. But when it comes to the nitty gritty of it, like let someone else figure it out. I'm not trying to uh, compare glyphs to a beautiful piece of wool machinery, but there's a metaphor. (laughs) No, but it is in a way. The lettering is handcrafted. It's bespoke. I mean, it's beautiful, right? It's perfect. It's authentic and unique in the end. And let's talk just a little bit more about the typeface. There was all this great punctuation. Why do those? And I'm not saying like, why bother? It seems like there was a little bit too much energy spent on the punctuation and the arrows and stuff like that. Is that just something where you just got carried away? Like, this is cool. Let's just extend it to this fun glyphs that may never be used. (laughs) Emily has no limit of energy (laughs) to spend on additional glyphs or punctuation. So just came out. But I don't know, Emily, why did you get so excited with those? That's the, base, yeah. that's the baseline for us. That's the, the minimum. 
No, I think a little indulgent, but also practicality to it in that we wanted to make sure the whole type system and the amount and availability in the different forms was going to last a long time and that there would never be a need of, oh, we need this currency symbol and we're extending into this market and we need this. So that was very much intended to have longevity to it. Yeah, it was also a great opportunity for us to bring more of the character that was inherent in the original source material into it. Like with the ink traps, we really wanted to emphasize those with the condensed forms and bring the slabs into areas in punctuation where maybe it wouldn't typically be, for example, with the arrows. So that was, I think, a great opportunity to extend all of those traits that were originally there in the history of it and bring out the quirks more. I think it was exciting because we really only had the words Chatham blankets to work from. We sort of had to invent the rest of the alphabet and then punctuation, all that stuff. I think once you figure out how the typographic letter form system works, and then you start drawing one glyph after the next and like ones that aren't sort of in the source material, it's like really exciting to see how far you can go and reinvent those letter forms, even though there are historical slabs that we looked at and chose characteristics from. But I think like the numerals in particular, those are so weird in a good way, the way that the slabs sort of come off the nine and the six, and like the threes. Yeah, it just actually became exciting to see how far you could take it. Agreed. Those numerals are great. And I think if, Alex, if you sold them as numbers for houses, I think they would sell really well in really nice materials. <laughs> Moving away from the typeface, even though we could speak about it for another hour, you also pulled in some additional icons and typographic badges from the historical archives that, that are used with a lot of restraint. Why did you decide to keep this one so the quieter side? And I'm mostly asking because they're really cool and it would be super fun to see them take on a bigger role. But that's not a criticism of the work, just like the little sheep and the little candle. Like they're all really cool drawings. How did you choose what you chose? And why did you then choose to keep them a little bit on the down low? Yeah, I mean, we thought the exact same. We saw all of them and it was so beautiful and we wanted to use all of them at once. And we explored that and it kind of diluted the effect that they had when you were using them in a composition or around any other elements of the identity. And so the solution to that was kind of having a strict system of using two to three at the most, any more than three, and you're losing the emphasis in the story of each individual one because all of those symbols and graphic elements span over a century. So there's very unique stories to be told through each one of those. And Jesse coined this great term for them as we were like digging through the research and finding it. I think it was gems. So we were excited to pull those in. Graphic gems. Yeah. And now that my memory is being jogged, I think the one thing that Alex told me in the very beginning when we were starting, he said, yeah, I just don't want this to be eclectic, a bunch of stuff going on, like a bunch of old symbols happening at the same time. Like, I think he wanted it to be a more a higher end brand and something a little bit more simpler. My first inclination was, yeah, let's just like use all of those symbols at once. And it's just this big eclectic graphic identity. But I think that's the one thing he said not to do. But then we've decided, well, what if we just turned it down to one or two and did it in that way? Yeah, it worked. Alex, do you have a particular favorite gem? I'm partial to the sheep, the older sheep that's based on an engraving. Symbolically, I feel like the most significant, but I love the fact that we have those little symbols and somehow they found a good way to, you know, because there's so much material, there's so much history. And like Jesse was saying, you want to bring it all there. 
But for me, a strong brand is very concise and has a single clear statement But then somehow being able to pull those symbols that you can use that are authentic, part of the heritage, and it doesn't all somehow just get wasted, all this sort of great material that there was. And so I really love that. Yeah, and hopefully there's more opportunities in your future and the future of Chatham to keep using those. Now, a question for all of you. At what point in the process did you design something, in the case of you, Jesse and Emily, or see something, in your case, Alex, where you went, okay, we got this, this is the way to go? I think I almost felt that way the first presentation. The handling of the cohesion, which is the biggest thing that I had a hard time wrapping my mind around, was having all this material, knowing vaguely that I wanted to do something, but not knowing how it would all tie together, and just seeing them apply their eye and their organization and making sense of things, and having that reassurance that, oh yes, they're going to juice it. (laughs) Taking it back to the very beginning. Hold on. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's when we did start to extend it into just other applications beyond the label, which was the first piece that we were focused on. It was like, let's get that label that Alex is already using, but do it a little bit more concise and how we would do this from like a typographic point of view from spacing and all that. So we got the label right. And then we started to extend it to digital applications. I mean, this is such a physical product and that's what it is. It's a blanket. And then once you start to create the typeface and start to type things out that aren't chat and blanket, and you start to see it in a much broader context, that's when I was like, oh, this works. And it's not just a logo type or a word mark, but it can actually extend to become the voice of the brand. Emily probably typed out some very short sentence on the homepage and it just clicked. You can really see the extension that the wordmark could go to from that label to all the other applications. So I think it was probably the digital applications. We now sort of cross the border from the physical to digital space. Yeah, I definitely think echoing that in the the construction of this typeface and then seeing it pulled into digital. But I think especially for me, an area I was really excited about and excited to see come together was that plethora and the sea of different Chatham Seas that we had and pulling from various parts of the typographic language. I was really excited that we were able to find a way to use those very minimally and just call back to all of the different eras and decades that have existed. Since it's such a rich history, I feel like that's such an exciting part to celebrate and an exciting way to bring in kind of the diversity of past generations who have really enjoyed Chatham Blankets. Personally, my grandparents have Chatham Blankets and I saw them during the process. So being able to call back to those historical moments is very exciting. Great answers to tricky question. Alex, now that you have an identity in place and the production of the blankets is in progress, What's next for this new iteration of Chatham? Do you plan on offering other blanket designs, adding other wool-based products? What happens next? I think building out a line of patterns that are based on historical patterns, working with textile designer to basically do what Order has done with the graphics, but, you know, with the actual textile patterns themselves and use archival material to make things that are authentically based, but are feel fresh. And then working on some new sort of fibers. The blankets that we have now are plain wool. And we are working on a cashmere construction and talking about using some other finer fibers, let's say. 
perhaps a delicate question in terms of that you have a full-time job, or is there an end goal to do this full-time, to have mass distribution somehow? Is there an ambition to grow it beyond what the Kickstarter started? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, that will involve reaching out to investors and raising some money to get it to the next place. You know, my dream is just for this to be kind of a true American luxury company. And I think for that to happen, there needs to be more investment in the product. And then, of course, just in communication and community. That's usually the hardest part of any product, not just coming up with the idea and coming up with the process, but expanding it. That is just so difficult. Good luck on that front. Thank you. Yeah. Jesse, now a question that between this project and Gage and Tolner, you have a couple of projects that build on this rich and deep history of the businesses, and you've done a fantastic job serving as design archaeologists of sort. Are you considering having a new business policy where any new client must have first been established before the 1900s? Yeah, I don't know how long order would last if that policy was implemented, <laughs> but in a dream world, that would be a lot of fun. I will say, I mean, these projects, when you do have the material to pull from, and not to always say like it's the only way to do this. I mean, even if a company is, you know, has hundreds of years of history to it, it doesn't always mean that you need to resurrect the past in such a direct way. I think for this, it became the identity without us having to do actually too much and sort of disrupting that existence would have done a disservice. But I think an organization can have a long history, but it doesn't always mean that you have to revive it in such a direct way. And Gage and Tolner was yeah, essentially the same thing. I mean, we sort of like took that mark and didn't implement a new version of it. But I think we supported both of these brands with contemporary typefaces and color palettes and the application into a digital world. But no, I think we allow brand new companies into our arms. But I do love the idea of uh, design archaeology as one of our services. <laughs> it's a rare thing to be able to do well, because it's so easy to just replicate what's there. And I think what you've been able to do with those two projects is what you just mentioned, give it a new interpretation for a new era that honors the past, but doesn't just say, all right, here you go, this worked 100 years ago, here it is again, verbatim, but actually giving it a new visual language that makes sense today. Final question for all three, sort of looking back at the process, looking back at where you started, where you ended up, what was the most exciting aspect of working on this project? Something that I really value is a product that you can have and it will last a lifetime plus plus in theory. And that's not a very common thing these days. I think as consumers, we strayed away from that. Sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad, but I am very excited and very honored to have worked on a project with a product that I completely stand behind and I'm excited to own for my lifetime and pass on to my kids. Yeah, mine's probably not a design-related answer, like semi-cheesy, but I think it was very fun to work with a client who's also a friend and like someone that you know the pressure seems to be somewhat taken away in the sense of that we had like a previous relationship and this was a very fun project to work on. And I think we had more fun than we did fear. I think sometimes when you have a new client relationship, you're sort of feeling each other out. You're like dating for a little bit. You're like not ready to commit to a full-time relationship. 
And I think this one, like there sort of was a casual nature to the project where we truly could enjoy it. And I think that came through in the work, mostly, if not entirely due to Emily and sort of like developing the typeface, all these sort of supporting devices. And yeah, it was just fun to work with a friend. The moral of that story is keep everyone that you go to school with very close to you or that you know in life. I mean, any of your neighbor, I don't know, your taxi cab driver that drives you to the airport, like you never know who's going to sort of like hit you up for a new business. And it's much more fun to work with friends than someone completely new, even though new relationships are great to build on. But yeah, it was a lot of fun to work with a friend on this. A slightly cheesy answer, but a good one <laughs> and, a, and a good lesson in there, I think. <laughs> I warned you. Yeah, no, I think one of the key aspects of doing anything good in life is being nice to people because you never know when you're going to make a good impression on someone for whatever it is and that that will eventually one day lead to something else that benefits everyone. So yeah, I think being nice to everyone is a good rule of thumb. Alex, for you, what was the most exciting aspect of working on this and now taking this forward with the possibilities for Chatham? I'll say that I've been a huge fan of order design. I've loved their work for years. And for me, there's a certain satisfaction in making that work for me and kind of like owning some of that work. I don't know if that's like kind of perverse, but yeah, I got some of that order work now. There's a lot of satisfaction just watching the process. For me, a particularly satisfying part of it is seeing this completeness and the cohesion and then seeing it expanded out across applications. There's just a tremendous satisfaction in that part of it. So like the first presentation where they showed what the complete system would be like, the lettering, and then how it would make sense was, yes, this is what I wanted. I really like that perverse idea of owning that magic of the design from order. And I think the result shows this great synergy between your past relationship and friendship and the trust, Alex, that you put in order and order your ability to revive this wonderful visual language that was already there and giving it a new spin and giving people the option to buy these beautiful blankets that look so amazing and they were presented so well. I'm going to stop rambling because this is the point where I tend to ramble. So Alex, congratulations on getting this off the ground. The product is beautiful. Jesse and Emily, great design, great identity, very lovely presented as usual. Thank you all for being on the follow-up today. It is time to go cozy up with a blanket and a cup of coffee or keep working. Either one works. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Not all friendships can turn into successful working business relationships, but the existing camaraderie and comfort between Alex and Jesse certainly helped pave the way for a fruitful process that started from as Jesse mentioned, a place of fun rather than fear. A feeling that clearly extended to Emily, who took the challenge of designing the brand typeface and wordmark with evident gusto. On that topic, it was great to hear Alex compare type design to woolmaking as a product requiring equal levels of consideration and craft. In this case, that sentiment rings true as both the inaugural blanket and the resulting slab serif typeface and all of the identity, reflect a deep commitment to quality. Today, thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll be here. We hope you'll be there.